Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. Hey, Alyssa, have you ever come out of a race with a really bad sunburn? I sure have. My very first Kona, I'll never forget. It was awful. Well, I think I have a product for you. Zelio Sun Barrier SPF 45 is a zinc-based and water-resistant sunscreen. It's long-lasting, oil-free, and won't sting your eyes. I've used it, and it works great. I'll have to try it because I have heard that Zelio's products are designed and tested by champion triathletes like Heather Jackson, Lindsay Corbin, Jesse Thomas, and Rachel McBride. Wait, did you forget someone? Oh, that's right. And our very own Haley Chura. Well, Zelio's products are made with high quality and long lasting ingredients to stand the test of the hottest days, sweatiest training sessions, and toughest elements. They give athletes like us confidence and peace of mind to perform at our best without worrying about our skin or hair products. The products you won't want to train or compete without are the Sun Barrier SPF 45, Betwixt Chamois Cream, Swim and Sport Shower Products, and the Body Lotion. You can use the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com to get 20% off. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for... Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Hi, Alyssa. Happy race week. I can see that it looks like you have your race day nails already. Are you, are you packed and ready for Copenhagen? Haley, I'm like a kid on waiting for Christmas. I am. I'm like ready so early and I did, I got my nails done. I'm like trying to get myself in a, as most prepared as possible place. And part of it is because I actually meant to count the days. I feel like it's been I guess it's been over 450-ish days since I've last raced an Ironman. And for someone who has raced 31, 32 Ironmans since in the past 15 years or a little less, 14 years, you know, that's, I don't usually take that much of a break between them. So I feel a little bit out of practice with some of the things and I'm really just making sure that I had started packing early. And the good thing is, is that I'm going to a climate that's completely different from the climate I am in. So I can actually like 
pack a suitcase and pack a lot of the things I need and not be constantly like pulling them out and needing them this week. So that is quite helpful that I can just have a whole separate other thing going and like everything's packed. But I had to do a lot of like reordering too. Amazon has been like probably what is going on with this girl because it's like, oh, I need some new lock laces. Oh, I need some new flasks. Oh, I need some new thing. And it's like everything I'd remember an hour after the next thing. So needless to say, I wasn't super green with my male habits this week, but I'll try and do better going into Wisconsin. So I think I'll have everything set after this. Yeah. Cause your turnaround is pretty quick, but I want like out of practice. I'm trying to think about out of practice for an Ironman. I'm like, are you worried your transitions are going to be too fast? <laughs> like, <laughs> you're just going to speed through, but I guess it is grabbing that flask, making sure you have all the calories on you. Those, those things do matter. How, like what is your travel what are your travel plans? Are you, we're recording this on Monday and it's a pretty big time difference to Copenhagen, right? Weather difference, time difference. Do you go early? Do you go last minute? Like what are your plans? Yeah, I do. It's a six hour time difference. So they are six hours ahead of where I am on the East coast. And I like to, when it's, it's, so that's pretty big, right? That's like, you know, definitely having to adjust your sleeping patterns big. Um, and so and that's the rough direction, right? Flying East, because then it's like, you can't go to bed early enough and then you have to get up really early. Yeah. So what I like to do in this instance is we're recording this Monday today and Wednesday afternoon and evening, I'll fly out to Copenhagen. And so it's basically a red eye from DC over to Copenhagen. And I land there right early in the morning, like 7.15 in the morning on Thursday. And so... It's a direct flight. That's pretty nice. One flight. Well, I'm I'm flying actually out of Charlottesville too, which is kind of unique. Sometimes you get like random deals. And so when you weigh in the cost of like having to go through and like DC traffic is like a nightmare, right? And so having Mm -hmm. to build that part in, plus like the more expensive parking up there, plus like the two hour drive to the DC airport... If you can get a ticket out of Charlottesville and then take the 45-minute little flight up to D.C. to get the direct flight, it's totally worth it in some instances. So I actually was able to get that. So that should make everything a lot easier for me, too. But then basically my plan is I try and sleep as much as I possibly can on that flight. And then I am super strict with myself, Haley. Like, I don't know if I'm better at adjusting to jet lag or if I'm just better at willpower when it comes to that. But, like, I will have coffee as much as I need to that day, but there are no naps on my Thursday. So I have a couple workouts, like I have a jog and I have an easy spin and I'll have to build my bike. I'll have to get into my Airbnb. So there's like a lot of moving parts to Thursday, but there will be no napping because I think that first night you get over there when you only have a couple days is like super, super important to help you adjusting. And so I'm just, I'm very strict to myself on that, but I'm actually pretty excited before we hopped on the call today, I was finalizing some plans. The first year I raced over there, I believe in 2015, 2016, I had a homestay and the woman that hosted me that year, her and I have still kept in touch, uh, four years later, I guess. And so we're going to, I'm going to go over to her home and have dinner on Thursday. So that will also help that, like the adjustment thing to get on normal time. And so I'm, I'm staying closer to the swim start now that I kind of know the lay of the land. Staying with her requires a bit of like all sorts of public transportation in the morning. And that wasn't my favorite aspect of that. So, but I'm really excited. I'll get to catch up with her and it's, uh, it's kind of, and she's going to cook me dinner, which is going to be nice. Like not having to think about that on the first night. But then, you know, after that first day, it's like 
Friday and Saturday will go by pretty quick with check-in, getting everything set and ready. And so I kind of like that quick turnaround for those, you know, that big time difference because you don't even have a chance necessarily to really like to relax too much and think about it. You know, I'll just have to keep everything in line and then get ready to execute the race on Sunday. And is the course the same as previous years when you raced there? I know. And is the, have you ever, I, I've looked at your weather, <laughs> the weather coming up for Copenhagen and it does, it looks like it's going to be kind of chilly and rainy. Have you raced in those conditions over there before? So the weather app is like a little bit misleading. It often says like rain and then it's really just like cloudy and showers through the day. So it was like that. The last time I raced there was pretty similar weather and it doesn't get too cold. So it's like 60 to 70 degrees and it can rain. It cannot rain. It can rain quite hard. Like it was dumping rain out just after I finished the last time I was there. Um, and we had some rain on the bike, but it is warm and it's humid. So it feels a little bit more warm. That said, since I haven't felt that in a while and I am like, like you, I'm looking at that, like, oh man, maybe that is going to feel like, you know, Antarctica or something. So I'm packing my booties. I'm packing like my rubber gloves. I'm packing all of those rain gear tricks that I like, you know, I don't know. I know I'm not going to need them, but I want them with me just in case type of thing. That that's a smart plan, because when you do have that short turnaround, I mean, it's kind of nice You're staying more days in your own bed before you leave. But there isn't really time to, like, go scramble around Copenhagen trying to find rubber gloves or something or like socks that will cover, you know, double as arm armor or something like that. You just don't need that drama. So you might as well pack it. And Haley, I don't know if you've ever spoken to or tried to read Danish, but it that language is like a very difficult. So, you know, there's a good bit of English, obviously, out and about in Copenhagen. It's a pretty major city, but there's also like I'll be staying in an Airbnb, kind of like a neighborhood that I imagine is going to be pretty local. And so finding my way through the Danish language is is a struggle at times. And I'd rather just not have to be out searching Copenhagen for you know, whatever random like item I need to survive the race. So Google translate, Google translate. <laughs> I don't know what we ever did before that, but, um, cool. Well, I'm so excited to follow your race and good luck to you and good, happy travels. And although I'm not saying goodbye, cause we still have a whole show to come up, but uh, goodbye to this segment of the show. Um, Alyssa, do we have any mailbag questions? <laughs> Yes, Haley. So we do have a couple mailbag questions that came in. And so for our listeners, you can always send in your questions to ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com and we'll take a stab. And we had some come in and we just grabbed just a couple that came in for this week. But we'll be looking forward to answering some more of those. We actually have these came in from Maria and we're saving her third question for an upcoming episode. So thank you for these, Maria. The first question that she has is about minimalist running shoes. So there's a lot of research supporting the benefits of strengthening your foot muscles and tendons by allowing for maximum flexibility and feel for the ground with shoes that offer that just offer protection against glass rocks, etc. without added support. So what are our thoughts on minimalist running shoes and Haley what are your thoughts on minimalist running shoes so I'm going to say like shoe choice I'm taking the cop-out answer the shoe choice like nutrition like a lot of things that we talk about on here it's a very personal decision and I do think it's also something that can change during your running career so if I give my own like anecdotal personal experience I will say that when I was coming back from a major leg injury a few years ago I transitioned into more cushioned shoes and a lot of that was I probably had a good six months where I did not run and I was in a boot for part of that and you lose a lot of muscle and 
just everything hurt a lot. Like for me coming back from running was, it was really, really hard. And so having a more cushioned shoe, just, it felt better on my body. And that I had been running for several years before that, but that was, you know, that was just, it felt better. And that kind of got me back. And then I also have, I have what is called a Haglund's deformity on the back of my heel, which sounds really terrible, but it's also if people follow like Gwen Jorgensen, um, I think she actually had surgery for that recently. So it's, it's just a bone spur on the back of your heel. And luckily mine has never really caused an issue. It doesn't hurt. doesn't really affect my Achilles at all, but it does like if I'm wearing shoes that are like too tight or that have a really rigid, like back, you know, the heel part, it will rub against it and just like blister. And it just, that hurts. So having kind of like a more flexible shoe on the back. I mean, that's one reason I wear like flip-flops a lot just because it does get a little bit irritated with shoes that have like a hard heel. So again, very personal choice. If you don't have that, like you probably don't need a more cushioned shoe. And then to, to throw all of that out the window in races, I like to wear more minimal shoes, lighter shoes. I think it feels faster. I can handle some like heel pain if it's like not very long and if it's just one one day. And I do think the psychological part of having like my race shoes helps me. And so I guess this is a very long answer to kind of simple question, but it depends. You, you have a place in your life for all different kinds of shoes. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that you know, the minimalist running shoe trend, obviously it came up kind of through like ultra running with the book born to run. And people were talking about that and how this is great. But then, you know, one thing that they didn't really follow up with is that a lot of people got injured after that. Right. And so while I probably would agree that minimalist running shoes like are good, I think it's good for like the time period that they were like almost like invented for in a way, right? So I don't think minimalist running necessarily has a huge place in kind of the time that we live in with all the concrete and things like that and all, you know, and, and things like that's just different than like the born to run minimalist shoe type of thing. That said, yes, there is some research saying that that kind of thing strengthens your feet and your tendons and all of that, right? So what I personally like to do is I, this is also a reason why I actually have one of my sponsors is Cadence Running Company out of Phoenix, Arizona. And having a running store, I will say has been, I would, a big perk, I think, rather than necessarily just being tied to like one shoe brand or something, because I'm able to work with them and get periodically shoes of all different things, right? So I'll say like, okay, I'm going into a big training phase. So, you know, I need just you know, one shoe that's like kind of like you said, like a lighter, more neutral shoe, maybe for like the faster or for racing and stuff like that. But then, you know, I actually need a couple pairs of more cushion shoes for some longer miles and one pair of stability shoes for some like really long stuff because I'm really going into this block. I'm going to be doing a lot of running. And so I like to just kind of always switch things up on my feet and never, you know, and I find that by doing that, I'm strengthening a lot of the muscles and the tendons and keeping things kind of different on them rather than just going minimalist. I think, I don't know. I, I don't know if my feet could take the pounding. I think I'm like a baby when I walk across gravel and stuff. Anyway, I like hate it. And I, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think I am made for minimalist running shoes in general. And quite honestly, I think, uh, especially like the Vibrams and stuff, like, unfortunately, I think they're just not made to be used for all the miles. There's probably a time and a place for them. Um, so it's kind of a rule of thumb. Would you say like the longer you're going and maybe the harder the surface, the more cushion typically? 
Probably. Yeah. I think a lot of it for, for me depends on, yeah, like the surface I'm running on and then also like the speed of my run, you know, like if I do have a long run where I have to go fast, I think mentally it helps to have pretty flexible shoe, but also some good cushioning, you know, if I'm like, I do a lot of just, uh, when I'm really kind of in a build phase where I'm doing some easy, like 40 minute, you know, hour, just easy, easy runs. And I'll put on a like pretty heavy stability shoe for that because, you know, I am, I'm running on concrete and I think that it just helps me like, you know, usually those kinds of miles are done when I'm pretty tired and it just helps things not break down quite as much, I feel like, but I'm sure someone could probably give you like a little bit more of a scientific answer based on how your gait changes various fatigue levels and stuff like that. I also want to throw in, I'm throwing in another wrench here because I had just, I read, um, I think it was a study recently that it was saying, you know, they're talking about the Nike shoes that we've heard so much again, the Nike vapor flies and how they actually can help with recovery. Like the foam and the carbon plate that's in there can help make your recovery faster. And that was something that I hadn't necessarily thought of. I think I was thinking, oh, do, you know, like you said, for faster workouts, wear lighter shoes. But I guess that is something to keep in mind too. Like if you were using really minimal shoes, make sure you have to keep in mind, like how's your recovery after that as well? Because if you can handle it, but then for the next three days, you know, you handle it during the run, but the next three days you're like hobbling around, that probably isn't beneficial. That's a really good point. But at the same time, you know, like one more wrench and how everyone else is different, right? I know some people have been running in those Nikes and it's causing like, you know, it does, it changes the way your gait happens and it changes your gait. And so like, people are getting a little bit of calf problems. Like that's one of the things that they're reporting, right? And so again, like, you know, it's it's always a trade-off. And I think listening to your body is, you know, rather than just going for like what is kind of advertised as like the best at the time, I think, you know, the world we live in, I think the running shoe technology is pretty good. So I think using them versus a minimalist running shoe as your main source of running shoe is, is probably a good bet. All right. Do we have any other questions? Is that, yes, we have, that? we have a second question also to do with running and that kind of thing. So this is about proper running form. So do we believe that the ideal form is forefront striking and small steps with a high cadence? And so this is actually interesting. So I actually used to be, when I first got into endurance sports, I was a big heel striker, Haley. So everyone I told, or everyone would like look at me and say, you're heel striking. And I was like, I know. And basically when I started working with Hillary, you know, that was something I asked her, like, do I need to change my running form? You know? And she was like, whatever you know, she looked at what I had been doing. and was like, you're running well and you are running, you know, without injury to this point, running the way you are, like, we are not going to touch your gait at all. (laughs) Right. And so interestingly, you know, now 10 years later over time, basically it's like my gait has changed so that I actually am like a mid, mid, soul, I guess, is that midfoot strike, you know, like I land probably quote more properly, you know, and I think that's evolved as I've worked in more strength work, especially more recently and things like that. I go to a treadmill studio, actually. Um, That's one of a session that I'll do a lot where I do treadmill and strength work. And I like going there because you're running on a woodway treadmill and you have the instructor giving you the instructions, but they're also constantly reminding you through some of the intervals, like, you know, to stay relaxed and to keep your, your foot strike kind of just more under your hips, you know, they're not necessarily telling you like how to strike on your feet, you know? And I think 
staying relaxed and just kind of letting your body do what it's comfortable given where you are, like in your fitness journey, I think is, is really the most, once again, it depends, right? But I think that's really important because I think changing your gait like that is such a big thing and it really can result in a lot of hamstring problems. It can result in some like glute stuff. And I think over time, like if you do proper training and you do proper strength work, I think your gait kind of takes care of itself. I really agree with that. And I think my own experience is kind of similar. I I mean, so first to answer the question, I don't, I don't think there is one perfect running form or cadence that we should be trying to emulate. I think that sometimes athletes do get a little too caught up in trying to match the form or a cadence of a world record holder. You know, you, you watch videos of Iliad Kipchoge and you're like, that's how I should be running, but there's probably more to it because I think for the average person, I, I include myself as average, you know, like most people, if you're not running a a 201 marathon, bigger improvements are probably going to be made just by running more and staying consistent with training and injury free, like, like, you know, Hillary's advice to you. And so if I look at my own running form, my own running economy, mine has also, I think, changed a little bit over time and not because I did anything specific, but just because I've run more and I think my body has gotten a little bit more efficient in how it moves. Um, but that said, I do think doing some like neuromuscular work, like strides where you aim to run pretty fast for 10 to 15 seconds. I think that can be a really good tool for working on form and foot speed. And I do strides as part of a lot of my runs, like either as a warm up before an interval session, or I might do three to four 50 meter strides. Like when I finish an easy run and I usually walk or jog super easy between the efforts because the purpose of these isn't to create any additional fatigue. It's just to get my body used to that feeling of what it's like to run fast and giving me a second to, you know, 10 to 15 seconds to focus on form, but it's not like mentally taxing either because it's only 10 or 15 seconds. So that's something I would, I would suggest trying versus necessarily trying to like have a specific form, like go out there and see what it's like right now when you run fast, like, and feel what that feels like. So great questions that came in. Thank you, Maria. And anyone else can send in mailbag questions to ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And Haley, I guess a lot of talk about running, but I did want to remind our listeners that we have a big podcast supporter of ours is Wahoo Fitness and they have the Wahoo Kickers, which we both use. And just wanted to check in and see how you're using your kicker these days. Yeah, this is a great question because I think this time of year in the Northern Hemisphere, at least the weather's pretty good most of the places. And I think I've talked on here that I'm, I'm training specifically for the 70.3 worlds in Nice, France, which is a pretty technical course. I've been trying to get outside more than I usually do because I am a big trainer lover. I love my Wahoo, but descending is the one thing that is a little bit hard to practice on the trainer. So I've been getting outside. That said, I still ride the trainer plenty. Um, I'm on my Wahoo, especially for active recovery sessions. These are sessions that are, you know, I do a lot after maybe after a run or even just on like an active recovery day, I might spin for an hour, 90 minutes at like 50 Watts, like as low as I can go, which I couldn't really necessarily do that outside. I mean, most of the time, if I'm, if you're riding outside, I'm riding uphill for at least a portion. So it's hard to ride it. I mean, it's hard to ride at 50 Watts and stay upright, but you do get that, you know, that neuromuscular benefit that I was talking about of just like 
turning the pedals over and you're flushing out your legs. And when we talked to Christy Eschwanden, you know, several weeks ago about recovery methods, like she said, riding a bike easy is actually like a really good recovery method. It could be equivalent of sitting in Normatec boots. So, so that's something that I definitely, I still use my trainer for. And then I do still do some like specific interval sessions that are just easier to knock out on the trainer. I mean, there's just, if I want to just be head down as hard as I can go, not have to worry about stop signs, traffic, you know, stoplights, other, you know, people on the road or weather or anything like that, the Wahoo is the way to go. And so I do believe there is still a place for a trainer in your, in your life, even when the weather is wonderful. I love a good recovery spin when I'm like, oh, surely I can, I can pedal at 70 Watts today. And then I'm like, oh, nope. Oh, 65. Oh, 60. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know, uh, you know, you're like trashed right when it's like 70 Watts feels hard and you're like, oh no. <laughs> but thank you to Wahoo Fitness for their support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a training tool like a Wahoo kicker, definitely head to wahoofitness.com and check those out. They also have the bolt bike computers that I use quite a bit and heart rate monitors, all sorts of stuff to keep you training and will be good to stock up on and get prepared for because as much as we all love summer right now, those indoor riding hours are coming. Yes, always. And it's a whole ecosystem of products, Alyssa, the ecosystem of products at wahoofitness.com. I love that phrasing, but it's true. They do like work seamlessly together. It's kind of wonderful in our technology fueled lives. It's nice when they talk. And also online these days, we have a lot more written content going on livefeisty.com. So we have Sarah's weekly column that goes up, um, tales from my box, her box, not, not mine or Haley's. Um, and that I believe is getting published on Tuesdays. And we also had Lisa Ingerfield was writing. There's a lot of summit news going up. So a lot more to check out on livefeisty.com all the time. So, so head over there and check out what you haven't read yet. Yeah. And this, like we're, we're really working on building our content and including more written content at livefeisty.com. And then if you, you might've noticed that Alyssa and I did not take a break this summer, we have been bringing you great interviews for all the last couple of weeks. And, and part of that, a major huge part of that is because of our Patreon support coming from our patrons. And so we are very, very thankful that, um, for all of your support, if you have if you have signed up at um, patreon.com forward slash live feisty, your monthly contributions, they do go toward us being able to keep creating this content and bringing you interviews and doing the work we do each and every week. And so thank you to those of you who have signed up. And if you haven't, again, that website is patreon.com forward slash live feisty. And speaking of interviews, we have a very special one coming up this week that I think you all will enjoy. And a couple months ago, over in Yosemite National Park, Sayla Schneider, who is a 10-year-old, became the youngest to climb El Capitan. And she took a break from scootering around her neighborhood to chat with Haley and I about that and about how she handled such a feat at just 10 years old and maybe even what she has thinking about coming up next. So after a word from our sponsors, we'll chat with Sayla. Wahoo is dedicated to the journey of every athlete from a sprint to Ironman. Wahoo is with you every pedal stroke, every stride and every trying moment with the commitment to make you better. 
As endurance athletes themselves, Wahoo provides an ecosystem of products, including Kicker Smart Trainers, Element Bike Computers, and Ticker Heart Rate Monitors to provide exactly what you need to reach the finish line and smash your training goals. Hi, Sayla. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So like I kind of told you a little bit before, so Haley and I do a lot of swimming, biking, and running, and we do pretty much no rock climb. I don't know. Haley, have you ever rock climbed before? I have, but not recently and not as seriously as Sayla. Okay. So we want to start with some background just to kind of get our listeners going on a little bit of a different sport than they're used to listening to. So how long have you been rock climbing? So basically since I could crawl, when I could crawl, I would go on like the very bottom holds of the climbing wall and just use that to kind of have myself walk. You know, every, every baby uses something so they can hold themselves up to walk. A lot of the time it'll be someone's hand or just they, we hold on to things when we're learning how to walk. And so I use the climbing wall a lot. And then when I started walking, um, my parents put me in like a full body harness and I just started kind of climbing up the rock a little. A lot of the time, I would just I just liked to swing around on the rope. And so do you have a lot of memories of like being, you know, you're, you're 10 now, right? So do you have a lot of memories of being little? And like, did you, were your parents ever kind of nervous about the things you would get into when you were little? No, they were never, because it was never really like a push. They never said, oh, you, you have to climb today. You should, they were like, you should climb in a day, and I could climb if I wanted to. I never had to climb. I could just play around and throw some rocks in the river if I wanted. But yeah, I think I really got, got into climbing. Well, I've been into climbing forever. It's just always something. I'm always climbing on something. And then can you tell us a little bit about how, like, official rock climbing works, right? So there are kind of big routes and big mountains and things like that, that people climb. And so how does that work? Like for you, if, how do you even find out about something that you might want to climb? And then what kind of things are you doing to get yourself ready? So obviously when I was little, you know, swinging around the rope, not very professional, but as you get older or a better climber, what happens is that rope, you're waving it less. So you it's more there as a backup rather than like what's holding you up. So if you fall, it's going to catch you. But other than that, you don't really need it. And then you get into more of the skills. Uh, so instead of just climbing up some easier stuff, once you get to the hard stuff, you know, you're not just put reaching your hands up to holds right, right up here. You know, you're reaching way out there. And your other hand is way down here. So you have to really figure out ways to get through those moments where you're like, oh, no, I can't do this. We definitely have plenty of, oh, no, I can't do this moments in in our, our sport. And I think everyone can relate to that. Yeah. But you climbed El Capitan. You know, this is like, I don't even know. You know, that's what you think of when you think of big wall climbing. How did you decide to do that climb? So I think just kind of like ever since I heard about it and started learning about it and like family history, you know, my parents, they met on El Cap. My mom 
living alone in her ran and met my dad, got invited to go climb El Cap, and she was going to Yosemite, too, so she's just like, sure, you know, had their first kiss on top. <laughs> um, so it's, it's in your blood. Like, what kind of... Did you research the route? Like, how did you pick? You climbed the nose, I believe, is the route that you climbed, which isn't the easiest route. Like, what kind of research went into into this climb? So I looked a lot of just, oh, right here, I might have a challenging moment. Right here, it's probably going to be hard. But I think the biggest reason I picked the nose was it's just super classic. It was the first route on the nose. It's one of the most famous, maybe even the most famous route in the world. El Cap's super famous, but the nose just, it really stands out. It's the longest, and I just really, I felt like I wanted to do one of the, that really big one. I thought it'd give me um, a challenge, just it being so long, spending more time up there. When you talk about, you know, deciding where you're going to do each hold and like, how do you get this information? Did you go up and and look at the route or is it in a guidebook? Did you talk to people who had climbed before? So when I went up there, I actually, it was my first time being out in Yosemite and touching El Cap in three years. I went over there when I was seven and... My dad and my sister was three. My brother was five. And we went out and we climbed. Not the true first pitch, but the p- first pitch that I used where I climbed El Cap. And we just did that first pitch called Pine Lane. It's not even considered the first pitch. And we did that. And that was really cool. I didn't talk to any professionals uh, who had done El Cap other than my dad. Really, we weren't even planning to tell anyone people found out didn't we (laughs) people found out my my mom posted it on instagram and then of course our friend my parents friends found out and he writes for outside magazine and got out there (laughs) and so sayla take us back so when did you go out to climb el cap this year and then how long like were you out there before how long were you actually climbing? So I think it was my fourth time in Yosemite. I went there when I was two months old, and there's my parents have a picture of my dad holding me up in a little brown, like, PJ in front of El Cap. <laughs> and then I went there again. I don't know when. I don't know how old I was. And I went there when I was seven, and then I went there this time. Did you guys camp out for a while before you were going to do your climb this summer? We went over to a place called Unweep Canyon near Grand Junction. And we just went, like, halfway up a wall, spent the night in the portal ledge and went down just to see, like, what kind of big wall style was like. I'm glad you just mentioned the portal ledge, though, because we have a lot of questions about that. I don't know if you're ready to talk to us about that, but... Oh, okay. Fire away. Fire away. (laughs) So when you climb like a big route like this, that takes multiple days. So you basically have like a portal ledge, which is basically a ledge that attaches, I guess, to the side of the mountain. And you can like, it's like a tent. It's like a hanging cot. So it's like a, 
So if you can imagine a cot, well, that stands on legs. Well, instead of legs, it has straps that lead up to one point that you clip to the anchor. And these straps, you know, you can tighten them, loosen them uh, to match how your rock is. And so what is it like to sleep up on, you know, such a, a tall place like that? I mean, I get nervous sleeping in a bunk bed sometimes that I'll fall off, you know? Like, what is it like? to sleep up top on the side of the, the rock? So to be honest, my response is going to be very different from someone who is he, like doesn't climb response because I'm very used to the exposure. I've been up high my entire life. So to be honest, being up high doesn't really scare me. I mean, I obviously don't want to fall. I'm not, I'm, I mean, if I get untied, I'm, obviously going to be scared that I'm going to fall, but I, I know, I know I'm safe and I know I'm not going to fall. You're always tied in when you're sleeping. So if you fell out, a lot of people ask like, well, what if you fell out while you were sleeping in the night? Well, you're tied in. So you would, you have a pretty long, um, tether. So it's rather than like, so if you're eating dinner or sleeping, you obviously want it a little longer rather than when you're on a ledge in the middle of the day. So if you fell during the night, you'd probably fall about four, three to four feet. It's a lot easier to sleep in it when you're big while climbing and you're tired because obviously you are tired. It's like if you're hungry, pretty a lot more stuff is going to taste good rather than if you're not hungry. And so does that happen, like, when you're on the port ledge for five days this time, right? So first, did you guys just have to carry all of your food kind of with you and, like, ration it out? Yeah, you have to carry everything up, um, food, water. Water is your, is your heaviest thing when you're growing up. At the beginning, you had, like, 15 pounds of water. But your water is super heavy beginning and... And so you do something called hauling, where when someone gets to the top of a pitch, so big things, you obviously can't do it at once. You split it into little mini pieces. Each of those pieces is called a pitch. And you climb them one at a time, pull the rope, get the rope up, the other. And then so when you get to the top of one of those pitches, you can't leave your bags at the bottom, and you can't carry your bag to the top. It's way too heavy. You know, you've got three people and they need to survive and you need somewhere to sleep. You need extra clothes in case you get like wet from sweating during the day. You need all your food, all your water, everything you need to survive up there, everything you need to just stay comfy up there. And so what you do is you take this rope called a static rope. So most climbing ropes for when you fall, it helps if it's stretchy. So pretty much all climbing ropes are stretchy. Unless it's a static rope, which you use for other things. So one of the things you use, you use a static rope for is to pull up your haul bags. Now, static ropes, they don't stretch. They just stay where they are. Okay, I love what you say about big things, that you can't, you can't do everything at once, which I think can be applied to pretty much everything in life. But when you're in the middle of a big thing, you know, you're taking these small steps, you're going up the separate pitches, did you ever get tired and think you wouldn't make it I definitely got really really tired I knew that 
so most people, they have about a 50% chance of making it to the top. Only 50% people who attempt LCAP each year actually succeed. But I knew being 10, I probably only had an even smaller chance. So I knew that I probably wasn't going to get to the top. I'm 10. I mean, I did. There was still a chance, and I did, but... And so what happened, like, in the moments when you said you were really, really tired? Did your mind, like, think about the fact that, like, oh, I'm only 10, you know? Or did you have something that you would remind yourself instead? Like, how did you get through those times when you were just so tired? My dad was really, really helpful. He was always just like, you can do it. You want to climb out the cap? He always reminded me. One of the things he said up there, I remember, was... When you're doing something, if you just want it to be over, why did you even start it in the first place? If you just want it to be over, like, why even start? Like, some things are just hard, and that's just reality. That is great advice. So you remind yourself why you started, and that kind of kept you going through those hard times until you did summit. Yeah. And, and what did that feel like when you did get to the summit? Were you were you surprised? I was, I was really surprised, and I was really, really happy. I called my mom, and it, it was really cool. I was still I was pretty tired. I was running around up there, though. I, my dad says I have lots of energy, <laughs> and I do. <laughs> I was really tired the next morning when I had to hike down. That was super hard because it was super long, and I just climbed El Cap. <laughs> <laughs> And so you had mentioned that you guys didn't really tell anyone that you were going to be doing this. And it, so it, does, it sounds like it wasn't something that you were like, hey, no other kid my age has climbed El Cap, right? Like you weren't trying to necessarily go for a record or something. Yeah, I didn't actually know if I if there was a record. We thought that I might be the youngest girl to climb El Cap, but... Um, I really wasn't going into it for that. When did you find out that you were the youngest person to ever climb El Cap? Um, so we thought that I probably was right in the, right around on the third or fourth day. And then right around by the time I got to the top and, um, like up till now, we're more and more sure that I am the youngest person. Is that cool for you or is it, does it really not matter? I think it's pretty cool. Um, it feels really good to um, like be able to say that, but I think I would feel just as proud if I'd done it and I was just one of those other people doing it, just normal person doing it. And Sayla, you told us some of the advice your dad gave you while you were out there, it sounds like, but did you guys have a motto going into the climb at all? Yes, and I think it more came up in the climb like and, like, during it. Um, how do you eat an elephant? Small bites. So we were trying to think about it. And the, this is just not for a cat, but also just for life. How do you eat an elephant? Um, with <laughs> small bites. That is great. That's a great motto, like you said, for life. Um, have you, do you have any role models, like, women or men, other climbers that you really look up to, whether they're kids or adults? I like pretty much all the climbers. 
if I named all of them for you right now, you'd probably get really annoyed. <laughs> yeah, I like watching all the climbing movies. I bet a lot of people have uh, started to know Alex Honnold because his new movie, Free Solo, came out. You guys watched that? We did, yes. Do you think that you're a role model? Do you have people reached out to you and said that, you know, other girls saying that maybe you've inspired them to start climbing? Not necessarily, but one thing has happened tomorrow, actually. Tomorrow morning, I get to go climbing. There's this girl, and she climbs um, about as hard as me, um, even a little harder in the gym, two days a week. And I get to go climbing with her. Well, we're take we have a family business called Glamour Climbing Guides, and we're taking, and one of our guides is taking her guiding, and I get to go along, and it's gonna be my first time climbing with like a ten year old, and it's a girl that can, like, climb pretty well, and that's that's really exciting for me, cause kind of hard for me to find that. <laughs> that's super exciting. So. What would you tell someone maybe that was listening who is your age or close to your age who maybe wanted to start climbing, but they're not near your skill level, right? Or maybe someone who's a parent out there listening whose daughter maybe wants to start climbing. Like where kind of what kind of things would you tell them to start with? Start just in your local climbing gym. Most places have one, especially big cities, but even some small towns have just small climbing gyms or even try taking a board, just a um, a piece of wood, and putting little blocks on it, and making trying to make a climb out of it. I have a climbing wall in my garage um, that my dad built. Um, probably not going to do that. That's a little more difficult, um, rather than just a bunch of little pieces of wood. But but you you start small and you adds up to big things, right? Yeah, just gotta, you know, you can't start a lot, start climbing a ladder and just reach the top immediately. Well, Sayla, you are, you may be only 10 years old, but you've accomplished big things. You obviously have a great mindset and we know this is just the beginning for you. So thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your story and we will let you get back to all of your fun activities, getting ready for that big climb tomorrow with your fellow 10-year-old climber and continue to uh, inspire us to tackle the big things. Mm-hmm. One, bit, one bite at a time, right? Yeah. Bye. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Haley, do you know what our most popular Iron Women episode has been so far? I do, Alyssa, because you know I love the numbers, and it goes back to fall of 2017 when we interviewed exercise physiologist Stacy Sims. You are right, and do you know what Stacy Sims has been up to these days? I've heard she's working with Noon Hydration to help formulate some products that have the female endurance athlete in mind. Noon Hydration products have clean quality ingredients and are also non-GMO project verified, which means top quality ingredients for your body and the planet. Noon Hydration offers a range of hydration products for all your workout and recovery needs. My personal favorite is Noon Sport Fruit Punch flavor. What's yours, Alyssa? I like the Noon Sport in the grape flavor, and our listeners can go to noonlife.com 
and shop with a 30% off code of IRONWOMEN to find out their favorite flavor. And don't forget to let us know. That's noonlife.com with the code IRONWOMEN for 30% off. Alyssa, I have to admit, it's kind of cool to look back on the interviews we've had in the last couple months and realize we have interviewed a 10-year-old who climbed El Capitan, and then we have our 86-year-old triathlete, Molly Hayes, from a couple months ago. That's, that's pretty cool. Women are doing amazing things at all ages, right? I love it. I love hearing the varied perspectives, but a lot of the lessons, I think, really are kind of ageless, I guess. And so that's kind of fun to reflect on too, as we talk to them. And I do want to say that I was texting with Sayla's mom after we had her on and she did say that we inspired her and she's been asking about triathlons. So Sayla, if you are still listening, we can't wait to hear an update when you do your first triathlon and any questions in the meantime, you know who you can reach out to and ask. That would be amazing. I would love to see her on a triathlon start line. But um, for all of our other listeners, uh, we just wanted to reiterate that we have been working on our written content that is being posted at livefeisty.com, weekly column from Sarah, a couple of special pieces from Lisa Ingerfield, information on the Outspoken Summit that's coming up this November. And again, big thanks to all of our patrons on our Patreon campaign who are supporting us and helping us create additional content and bring you great interviews each and every week. Again, that website is patreon.com forward slash live feisty if you want to join the fun. All right, Haley. Well, I guess I'm off to Denmark here in the next couple of days and I'll talk to you when I'm back on U.S. soil. Safe travels, Alyssa, and have a great race. Thanks, Haley. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women Podcast is a live feisty media production. We want to thank our sponsors and partners, Noon Hydration, Wahoo Fitness, Zelios, Fen Coffee, FTC Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen.